Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you Well, it's great to be with you. Um, for those that, that are maybe new here today or new online with Nest Church, yes, my name is Frank Trotta. I'm one of the pastors and missionaries with Love Life here in South Florida. And it is a delight for my wife, Nuri, and I to be back with you, to be here today among the body of Christ. And let me just say this. This is a special place. Not, 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 not the location, but the love. Right? Not the building, but the body. This is a special place. And, and I know you know this, I'm going to say it anyway, but, but your pastor goes to war for you from this pulpit every Sunday Amen. because of the love of God and the love for his people. I know as a church you make war, but your pastor goes to war for you. This is significant in the life of the church. This is a special place. And today's a special day. Yes, I know that you've gone through now a season of fasting and a season of prayer praying for and hoping for a breakthrough in a variety of ways in your life. Now, let's just settle on this fact that God is at work and there will be breakthrough in your life. You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, your hands ready to work, and your feet firmly planted on the ground. God is at work in you. There will be breakthrough as we look to Christ. And today is also a special day because as Pastor mentioned a moment ago, January 13th, 1984, President Ronald Reagan issued a proclamation designating January 22nd as the first national Sanctity of Life, Sanctity of Human Life Day. And he did that because years earlier in 1973, on January 22nd, the Supreme Court legalized abortion on demand in all 50 states. Legalizing the killing of an innocent life. Sanctity of Life Sunday. Churches throughout the United States, they gather together and celebrate God's gift of life. They commemorate the over now 63 million lives that have been lost to abortion. And they commit to protecting human life at every stage in every place. Every human life at every stage everywhere in the world. See, there's a crisis in man's self-understanding. The value of life is under siege. And there are just disastrous consequences to a false or misguided view of the value of human life. Why? Because as we're going to look today into God's word, God cares. It's as simple and as profound as that. That God cares. Every human life, every stage, in every place, God cares. I mean, if you're ever in doubt about that, the first chapter of the first book of the Bible gives us the groundwork here. God says, let us, speaking to God the Son and God the Spirit, make man in our image and in our likeness. On the sixth day of creation, God did his, his masterful work, the apex of all of the creation. God made man the crowning glory of his work. He created man and he created woman. That makes you valuable. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you do, no matter your economic status, that makes you valuable. That makes you prized and precious. King David declared 
In the famous Psalm 139, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Right? The great apostle Paul says in Ephesians, you are God's masterpiece. All of you. We're God's masterpiece. It's all over the scriptures. This is not isolated in one area. This is all over throughout the Bible. If I can use it, the Bible's pregnant with all of this. God tells Jeremiah, man, before I made you, I knew you. Incredible verses on how God sees humanity, how God is made in humanity, and how God cares for humanity. This is why abortion is wrong. Euthanasia, bullying in school, human trafficking, school shootings, bullying in middle school, all of those things are wrong and evil because you are valuable. You're valuable because you're made by God. Man, it devalues. All of those things devalue what God calls supremely valuable. So this is, this is why we celebrate sanctity of life this day, this weekend. And I would, I would encourage you not just this day, but throughout the year. My objective this morning is really simple. It's uncomplicated. It's very simple. It's not confusing. May we see clearly that God cares. I mean, and that sounds um, you know, easy and that sounds simple, but, but I would remind you of this, that A.W. Tozer, the great author and writer and theologian, said, what you believe about God, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. So if you believe he cares, you're going to live in a way that reflects your belief that he cares about you. And we'll get there. Every human life in every stage, that's why we stand for life. This is why love life exists. We love life because God loves it. Let's take a moment to pray as we jump into the scriptures. Father, we are so grateful for these moments and these times together. Father, thank you for all that you've called the leadership of the church to do, to lead people, to shepherd your people, to guide your people in in recognition of your authority, of your power, of your omnipresence and your omniscience and all of those things, how you surround us, you hem us from behind and beneath and oversee us. Father, thank you. Today, this morning, as we sang and as as we worship and as we lift our voices to you, Father, I pray that you would grip our hearts in such a way that we would leave this place different than when we got here. That it would, it would surround us and it would rattle our minds and it would grip our hearts that you care for us. Lord, do this great work in us simply because you can. And we ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. And I grew up in New York and South Florida, between these two places. And, you know, as a Catholic family growing up, uh, we went to church and we did some good things. We, we, we handled all of our, our, our life in that way. I went to Catholic middle school. I went to Catholic high school. I was kind of just sharing that with somebody recently. Um, I mean, I guess it was kind of typical as, as a Catholic family. I mean, my parents were lovely people. They were great people. They, they loved life. They loved the church. We went to church on Sundays, as I said. But God was absent from our lives Monday through Saturday. So we went to church on Sunday. We did those things. I mean, we were, we were nice people. We helped our neighbors. I mean, the ones we liked, we helped. So we did. We helped our neighbors. We were good people. But, but there was no relationship with the living God. And that was the difficulty. That was the struggle that we had. I mean, I graduated college. I started a career. I got married. I had kids. All of those things with no thought, no recognition of the God who loves me and the God who cares. Man, already with a career and a wife and all of those things, at age 30, then God decided, 
I didn't decide. We don't decide. God decided then to, to grip my heart, to invade my heart, to give me a new heart, a new start, a new life. He dragged me out of the mud of my own life and drew me to himself. This is what God does. And my life, life, was never the same. I mean, there's so much more to tell you about my story, but the point here is that I just don't have a story. You have a story. Each one of us has a story. And if you know Jesus as your Savior, there is this before and there's this after, right? There's before you did this, you entertained yourself this way, you, you spoke like this, you lived like this, you did these things. But after, you, you, all of a sudden you lived like this and, and, and you spoke like this. And, and there was a change. There was a radical alteration in your life. So we start here. Today we start here because the gospel not only changes your story, but it gives you a new story, a powerful story that's going to be used to minister to and love on the people around you. You see, the scriptures are filled with these life-changing stories. There's all over the New Testament, the Old Testament, these testimonies of what God did in and through the lives of his people. Real people with, with real pains and real struggles and real scenarios. God was at work. Their lives, their destinies altered forever because of what God was doing. And the four Gospels, I mean, these are written with a purpose. God, through the pen of, of these human authors, wrote uh, these Gospels in, in, and had an agenda in doing that. There was an agenda in the four Gospels that we read. It was to present us with a persuasive portrait of who Jesus is. This is the purpose of the Gospels, so that you and I would follow him also, so that you and I would recognize that he's the one who changes life. This is the purpose of the Gospels. I mean, these Gospels, that they're not just history, although they are history, not just stories, although they are real stories, but individually and collectively, the Gospels here are really an announcement. The Gospels are an announcement that makes the earth-shattering claim that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, that he is the Savior of the world, that he is God in the flesh. This is the announcement of the Gospels that are found in your Bible and in mine. This is what they do. This is what they say. Real accounts of people found therein to persuade us, to help us acknowledge and know Jesus as Lord and as Savior. And why all of that? Why am I saying it? But why is it true? Because God cares. Because you matter. Because people matter. Every single one of you. You matter to this church. You matter to your pastor because I know him. But more importantly than that, more significantly than that, you matter to an almighty God who cherishes every single one of your lives. You matter. And that's what I want to talk with you about today. Very simply, that God loves people. And that sounds like, like an all-too-common, oversimplified statement, and it is. But it's true. All the same. God has revealed himself to humanity. He's revealed himself to you. He's revealed himself to me in creation, in conscience, and in his word through his son, Jesus. Every person, everywhere, matters at every moment to God. If you've got your Bibles with you, let us turn then to John chapter 4. 
We're going to spend the rest of our time in John chapter 4 with a story here showing us and teaching us that, that there are stories in the gospel. And Jesus has his finest hours right here, right in front of us in the gospels. You know, Jesus often met people. As you're looking for John chapter 4, Jesus often met people, people that nobody would want to talk to. People that nobody else would want to go see. People who were marginalized. People who were maligned. People who were mistreated. But they mattered. They mattered to God. And Jesus would change their story too. There's a famous account here in the Bible where Jesus meets a woman just like that. And oddly enough, no, not oddly enough, through the power of the Holy Spirit in Pastor Regal's prayer just moments ago, he mentioned one of these women that we're going to read about today, that's been read about for 2,000 years. We don't know her name. We don't know anything about her. But her story speaks to us today. Today, we can look at this story and see what Jesus did to share hope and to share help with this woman. He loves her right where she is. You're going to hear this throughout the story. He leads her to see her desperate need, and then he gives her himself. He loves her where she is. He leads her, and then he gives her something. John chapter 4, as you're getting there, just some context here. We find Jesus now um, on a road trip, as it were, with the disciples to a place in the city of Samaria. So this should get our attention before we get to the scriptures. This is going to help you frame and understand why this is important. This should get our attention that Jesus is going into Samaria because the Jews hated the Samaritans. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. They, they hated them, and that was well known. The Jews called them half-breeds. Man, what an insult the Jews to say about anybody. And typically, Jews in the first century, they wouldn't even go into Samaria. They would go around it. Like they would take the long way intentionally so they wouldn't have to get their feet dirty with the filth of Samaria. And this is in their mind. This is they, according to them. Let's read John chapter 4. So I'm going to take us through the passage, and it's not that long, I promise you. But if you're able to, because one thing else I know about Nest Church is you revere God's word. So let's show God's word the honor that it's due. If you would stand with me, I'm going to read his word and just track along with me as we stand together and read John chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 3. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee there in John 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near a field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, Oh, if you knew the gift of God, and who is it that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet out of our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem you will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, for we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And just then the disciples came back, and the woman marveled that he was talking to a woman. But no one said, why do you seek her? Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into town, and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. That's the word of the Lord. And please be seated. So we pick up the story in John chapter 4, and there, there's a lot there, and we're going to get through it, but, but stick with me as we walk this journey together. Man, this should get our attention here. Here in verse 5, Jesus now gets to the famous city here that's important to the Jews. There's a lot of things happening in John chapter 5. Jacob's well was there. That's important to the Jewish people also. Um, by the way, you would have, this would have been noticeable. For that audience that day, the people listening, the original audience of this story would have gripped this truth there in John chapter 5 about the the, the well, because that was a famous story way back in uh, Genesis chapter 28 of Jacob and Rachel at that well. See, Jesus is leading the disciples here on a field trip. He's on a field trip with the disciples and and to Galilee. Now, there's so much that's been made about verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. So let's not spend a whole lot of time on it. I don't want to get too distracted, but, but it's technically through Samaria is the shortest route to where Jesus wants to go, right? Instead of going around it, he wants to go through it. That's the shortest way to get there. But there's some significance that's happening behind the scenes that we need to know to help us understand the story. See, many see this language here as necessary, that he had to pass through Samaria. There's some divine necessity here, but there's a cultural issue that's going on that makes this a challenge. Uh, you, oh, what's the problem? The problem is between Jews and Samaritans. The problem here is what happened way before this event, 722 BC, way before what is going on here, the, the Assyrians captured the city of Samaria. Back then, the, the Israel kingdom was divided in two. And the Assyrian army captured the capital of the northern kingdom. And this is important to understand the story. They, de- they deported the Israelites and brought in foreigners. The foreigners that they brought in then married the, the Jews still living there. They intermingled with the Jews still living there. So when the Jews returned years later, they came back to people that were half Jewish and half Assyrian. So they were disliked. They were rejected politically. They were rejected religiously. They were rejected racially. And the Jews generally want nothing to do with the Samaritans. 
So what Jesus is doing here is already shocking. It's already surprising. It's already uncomfortable. So jump to verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water and said to Jesus, give me a drink. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman then begins this conversation. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink from a Samaritan woman? So now Jesus breaks culture again. Not only is he doing something the Jews wouldn't do by going into Samaria, but now he begins a conversation with a seemingly random Samaritan woman who, who he encounters at this well. So if you're keeping track, that's two just countercultural, shocking things that Jesus has already done in this passage that most Jewish men at the time wouldn't do. Don't let it escape your attention. This is scandalous for Jesus to do this. We don't know much about this woman, as I said earlier. We don't know her name. In fact, after this account, you never hear about her again. But this is not an accident. This is not by chance. This is not, this is not coincidental. This was intentional on the part of Jesus. And that's what's important, that, that a quick survey of the Gospels is going to show you that, that Jesus is often going into places that people don't want to go and talking to people. I mean, Jesus touches a leper. Nobody touched a leper in those days. In fact, when the leper came forward, the leper had to announce, unclean, unclean. And if the leper got too close to people, they would pick up rocks and throw it at the leper so they couldn't get contaminated. But Jesus himself touches a leper. Here, he's meeting this Samaritan woman, and he's going to reveal to her and reveal to the city and intentionally reveal to us the very character, the very nature of who God is. And not only is he going to reveal something, but she's going to teach something to us, a deep spiritual truth. Because not only did these two people didn't like each other, Jews and Samaritans, but this woman was an outcast. This particular Samaritan woman was already looked down upon by her people. She was a reject culturally. That's who this woman is. That's who Jesus intentionally encounters at a random, at a random location in the city of Samaria. Generally, men didn't do that. And this woman was marked as immoral. And she knew that. She knew she was already ashamed. She was already embarrassed. That's why she goes to this well in the middle of the day by herself. Jesus loves her because none of that matters. Her rejection, her fear, her, her anxiety, her, her brokenness, none of that matters to Jesus. He goes to her. He talks with her. He loves her anyway. Jesus loves her despite her immorality. You see that, right? Despite the life she's been living, living with men, regardless of what it looks like to me, you, or anybody else, Jesus loves her. She was an outcast, rejected and shamed, and God values her anyway. Man, that's beautiful. This is so good. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Let it speak to your heart today. By now, you must be thinking, all right, okay, so Pastor Frank, you're here, and, and you're from Love Life, and you minister to families, you minister to men and women in crisis, all of those things. What does this Jesus speaking to a random woman have to do with any of that? Well, this is the point. Jesus is giving us a picture here. He intentionally goes to the one in need. He then boldly loves the one in crisis, and then he graciously gives the one who needs hope. He goes to the one in need, he loves the one in crisis, and he gives that one what they need, hope and help. That's what Jesus is showing us a picture of here. And this, this organization that you've heard so much about, and so many of you have been on the prayer walks, and you've seen the video, this is, this is not, um, this is, the way I describe it is the most, it's, it's beautiful and ugly all at the same time. It's, it's incredibly 
satisfying to serve men and women this way, but it's difficult at the same time. But love life exists to mobilize the body of Christ to look like Jesus. You never look more like Jesus than when you're serving. And here, the body of Christ is creating this culture of life in the midst of a culture of death. I mean, are you not tired of death? Death everywhere. We want to create a culture of life that's going to result in the end of the thing of death. The end of abortion, the end of that crisis, the end of the orphan crisis. And this is how we do it. We go to the one in need. We boldly love them. And we give them the hope and the help that's found in Christ and the church. You see, we know where hurting people are going. And you might have heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. We know where the hurting people are going. We know where the ones in desperate need are showing up every day. And I'll take it one step further that might make you a little uncomfortable. We know where children are scheduled to die every day. Does that trouble you? Does that make you feel just a little uncomfortable? It should. But, but here's, here's the good news. There are, there are bodies of Christ. There are the body of Christ. Churches all over South Florida and throughout the country that are showing up with real help and real hope. The Nest Church is one of them. And if you've heard of other churches in the community, they're one of 55 churches just here in South Florida that are showing up, that are stepping out of the building and into the culture with the love of Christ and the hope of Jesus and the help of the local church. 55 churches. That's why you saw 6,000 prayer walkers. That's why you saw 84 babies, 84 image bearers of God that have been saved. That is why you see families that are thriving the incredible work that God is doing through the body of Christ with the vehicle of love life. And there's much more to say about that, but look with me at verse 10 as we get back to the text. Verse 10, Jesus answered the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God, who is it that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. And the woman said to him, sir, I have, uh, I have nothing. You have nothing to draw water with. The well's deep. Where do you get that living water from? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you, are you more significant than he is? He gave us the well. He gave us water to drink from it. He fed his sons. He fed his livestock from this well. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water is going to come back tomorrow. Everybody who drinks of this water is going to be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Let's stop there for a moment. So what is exactly Jesus doing here? Well, he's having a conversation with this woman about water. Well, it's about water, but it's not really about water, is it? So, I mean, they're at a well, and, and, and he's thirsty, she's thirsty. But the living water that Jesus brings up is now going to dominate the next six verses. Notice with me, all the verses in the next six of them all have this living water theme to them. And in verse 10, Jesus says, listen, girl, if you knew who it was that is giving you this water, that is talking to you right now, then you would have asked me for something better than just water. This is what Jesus is relaying to her. The Samaritan woman just doesn't get it. She's not making the connection here between the spiritual. She's thinking of the physical, right? So, and, and I know you know this because it doesn't just happen to her. If you go back just a chapter... John chapter 3, the religious leader makes the same mistake. Nicodemus, remember that story? Jesus is talking to him, and he's like, man, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, well, how can I go back to my mother's womb? And no, 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 no. He said, you must be born of the Spirit again. 
He's thinking physical. Jesus is thinking spiritual. The Samaritan woman is thinking physical, but Jesus is giving her a spiritual truth. That's the pattern we see here. Notice with me, Jesus doesn't really answer all of her side questions. He's not answering. She's bringing up Jacob. She's bringing up the well. She's bringing up this history. Jesus is, is, is just going around that and zeroing in on her desperate need. He boldly loves her in the midst of her chaos, in the midst of her confusion, in the midst of her crisis. Jesus is loving her boldly. She needed to see salvation that was right in front of her eyes. Eternal life was staring her in the face, and she needed to see it. She's at the well to satisfy this physical need, but there's a deeper spiritual need that's hanging over her head. She's at the well for water, but oh my, she needs so much more than water. And Jesus says, I know what you need. It's the living water. Verse 10, 11, verse 13, verse 15, all speak of this eternal life, this living water. Jesus declares to her, to you, to me today, hey, you need me. This is Jesus' declaration. And listen, as we, as we look at the context that I serve in that many of you have been to, the woman that shows up at the abortion center, the broken, the hurting, the woman that shows up there is the woman at the well. She is the woman at the well, shamed, outcast, burdened, broken. She is this woman. The women that show up there can identify with this woman better than anyone you know. Jesus looks at the brokenness. He looks at the pain. He looks at the the struggle. He looks at all the confusion, looks it right in the eyes and says to her, I see you and I see what you need. And look at verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, man, he's got something to give her, and it's good, and only he has it, and he knows where to give it, and it's identified here as Jesus. John chapter 7 is going to say it's the Holy Spirit. Well, it's God. He says he will satisfy you, your deepest spiritual need, your deepest spiritual thirst, your deepest spiritual hunger will be fulfilled. And see, this is the language of love life. This is what Love Life says, that our trained sidewalk missionaries deliver that language to the moms and dads. There is hope. There is help. There is what you need. His name is Jesus. But you see, the problem is, that exists in, in, in in the virtue of us being human, is that God says through the prophet Jeremiah that his people have forsaken him. The fountain of living water. Jeremiah talks about the living water, how the people of that day forsake, forsook the living water. This is the problem even now. We chase other things. What was that woman at the well chasing? Was she chasing acceptance? Was she chasing relationship? What was she chasing? What are you chasing? I mean, you've just gone through a season of fasting. You've just gone through a season of prayer. God has revealed things to you. Are you seeing it? What are you chasing? Are you chasing after him? Because whatever else you're chasing is going to lead you away from him. Before we leave verse 14, notice with me the end. We'll become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Man, what what beautiful poetry, what beautiful language that Jesus is using to communicate this, this unfailing source 
this never-ending, ever-flowing source of life. That's what Jesus wants to give this woman who's at the well looking for water to drink. It's beautiful. I mean, he's going to make the same claim in just a moment in verse 26. We're going to get there. But notice with me in verse 15, the woman says, all right, give me some of this water. Still not getting the spiritual truth here. Now look how Jesus skillfully turns the conversation. Look how he masterfully helps this broken woman see her own need. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. And then she says, yeah, what you've said is true. And they go on. But, but this is the bad news. All right, this is the bad news that he's got to get to to help her see the good news in just a moment. The bad news is the reason that, that, that why she has this desperate need, the reason why she has this struggle, this confusion, this pain, is her sin. That's the reason. This, this is why all people have a desperate need. This is why you and I have a desperate need. It is our sin condition. This was her condition. Listen, I'm guilty. You're guilty. She's guilty. And Jesus takes that to Calvary. And he takes it to Calvary because he loves me, because he loves you, because he loves her. And the story unfolds here. And Jesus says, go get your husband. This, this might seem like a, a strange turn, but, but, but you'll see why in a moment. In verse 17, she says, I don't have one. She leaves out the ugly part as to why she doesn't have one. Jesus says, you're right. You've had five. So go, and, and, and the one you're with is not currently your husband. She's trying really hard to get past this. She's trying really hard to, to get around this, and she's currently living with her boyfriend. Right? That's, that's what's going on here, if we had to put it contemporary. She's living with her boyfriend, and there's a lot to say in this passage, by the way, about marriage, about family, about faithfulness, clearly living together, Jesus is showing is a problem. Let me just say this while we're here looking at the text. I mean, you know why living together is a problem, right? I mean, you know why that's an issue? Because it's fake. It's, it's let's play marriage. You have all the benefits and the enjoyment of marriage, none of the commitment. That's a problem here. Well, anyway, let's, let's get back to the text, back to our focus. See this. Jesus brings this up. He, he brings up her living situation, and he brings it up to expose her sin. And he doesn't try to make her feel better about it, right? He's, not, he's like, well, you know, a lot of people are doing this, and, 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 and it's, it's okay. It's really not that bad. If you're not hurting one, maybe something good will come out. Jesus doesn't do any of that. None of that evidenced here. And, and she doesn't even try to justify it. Like, she's not making excuses. She just tries to change the subject. But notice with me, Jesus is not letting her off the hook. He's not letting her by with this. She has to face her sin. Warren Wearsby, the great author and theologian and Bible commentary writer, says, there can be no conversion without conviction. No conversion without conviction. She must see her sin and in verse 19 through 24, see this as we just kind of move through that part quickly. The woman does her best to distract Jesus with all kinds of things, um, her issues. Salvation comes up, where the Messiah is coming from and who the Messiah is. And, and worship comes up. It's not limited to the temple. Worship as a heart attitude comes up. All of these things coming up, invading the conversation, trying to distract Jesus. But here's the weight of the passage. Don't miss this. Verse 25 and 26, this is where we find the weight of this whole discussion this morning. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who's called the Christ. 
When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, what did he say? I who speak to you am he. Wait, that's important. That's significant. So this this is what we've seen so far. Jesus' methodology, if you will. He he intentionally goes to her, right? And then then he boldly loves her right where she's at. And then he graciously offers her exactly what she needs. This is his method in approaching this broken and, and, and shame-filled woman. Jesus makes here now a stunning and in reality a kind of a rare claim. The first thing you want to notice with me is that the woman's faith, she's got faith in the coming Messiah. I know that the Messiah is coming. So she believes the Messiah is coming. She knows the Messiah is coming. She has faith in the coming Messiah. That's verse 25. But in the middle of this ordinary day, in the middle of this, her, her painful life, in the middle of her struggle with rejection, in the middle of her search for affection, this stranger, seemingly showing up out of nowhere, stands before her and drops on her this life-changing truth. She says, well, when the Messiah gets here, he's going to reveal everything to us. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm standing in front of you. Like, I who speak to you am here. You're looking at him. And this statement is amazing for several reasons. And let me show it to you this way. Because you mentioned this too earlier, Pastor Rigo. I mean, when Moses was in the middle of the desert, and he was standing and staring at a bush that was lit on fire but not being consumed, Right? And God says to him, hey, hey, take your sandals off your feet because you're on holy ground. And they have this conversation. Remember that in Exodus? Yes? Excellent. Well, here, God spoke to him there. And, and Moses said, okay, you want me to go back to Israel and tell them, who do, who do I say sent me? Like, like, what's your name? What do I call you? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you to them. See, that, that answer, I am, that, that is God's self-revelation. That's God's personal self-existence name, I am. And what you and I don't immediately see when we're looking at the passage is that when Jesus tells this surprised and, and shamed woman, when he says, I am he, in the original Greek, actually, the he is not found in that original statement. So Jesus, in the original document, actually said, I am. He uses the same exact construction. It's called the the ego ami in the original language. It it is the I am. It is the self-revelation of God's personal name. Jesus calls that and appropriates that to himself. He delivers to her what she needs, the thing her soul longs for. He delivers to her and says, listen, do not fear because God is here. This is what he's saying to this broken woman in the middle of an idle Tuesday at a well. He says, don't be afraid. I know everything there is to know about you, but, but don't be afraid because God is literally standing in front of you. Now, I, don't, I don't know how she would respond in that moment. I don't know how I would respond in that moment. But can you, can, can, you, can you see the emotional moment that this is in? Jesus goes out of his way intentionally not to go to the religious leaders in this particular case, not to go to the kings and queens in palaces in this particular case, not to go to the, to the, to the, um, the rich elite in this particular case. He goes out of his way 
to someone who you and I wouldn't even talk to. And he loves her in a way that, that, that is transformative in her life. Let this speak to you. The apostles return in verse 27, dumbfounded as to what they see. I mean, they're looking at their, their leader. They're looking at their, 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 the one who leads them. He, he's talking to a woman. He's having this conversation. Like, what is he doing? They get back. They don't, they don't understand what's going on in verse 28 and 29. The disciples come back, and the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people in verse 29, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And the reader now sees her stunning response to what Jesus has been telling. And, and notice with you, this is incredible. You see what she's doing, that she leaves her water jar. You see that in the text? These are important details. She leaves her water jar. Well, she drops her burden, leaves it there. Why is that her burden? I mean, that's the only reason why she was there was to get water. Leaves the water jar. You don't find that odd? That's the only reason why she was there. What happened to her thirst? What happened to her burden? Jesus happened. That's what happened. He gave her something better. He gave her something more fulfilling. He gave her something more encouraging for her life. This is what Jesus did. She ran into town. Do you see this little detail? Yeah, the town that's rejected her. Yeah, the town that has called her a social outcast. She runs back into town to the people. Yes, to the people who shamed her. To the people who look at her and they, they don't want to look at her and they walk by her and they make up excuses. They scroll on their phone so they don't have to look at her. She runs back to those people and she says to them, come, come and see. Jesus turned this woman into his witness. He turned this adulterer into his announcer. This is what he's done. She's going to go back and call these people to come to Jesus. Come and see. And this is what Love Life wants. Love Life wants men and women to drop their burden, grab their child, grab their salvation, and go tell someone. This is what we want. This is what Jesus is doing here at a well in Samaria. Jesus changed her story. Her trauma has now become her testimony. She found hope. She found help. Jesus changes your story too. For those of you that walk with the king, for those of you that have turned from your sin and you've embraced Christ by faith, your story has been radically altered. Your story has been changed. You've been given a new heart, a new start, a new story, a new life. You have gone from death to life. Not so different than the babies that are snatched out of the fire at the abortion center. They go from being on their way to death to being on their way to life. This is what Jesus is showing us here. Outside the abortion mill on the sidewalk every day, every day hurting people, every day with a story of their own, and Jesus can change their story too. For that unknown woman at a well in Samaria that day, Jesus changed everything, everything. And you know, I can't help but think, I mean, I'm preaching from God's word. I'm trying to be obedient to what he says. I'm trying to live my life in a way that reflects this truth. And I can't help but think as I stand before God's people, 
As I pray before you, as, as we do walks together, as I stand with your pastor and I, I listen to his preaching and I, and I watch his life and I see your lives, I can't help but think all the people looking for hope and all the people looking for help that show up at, at a place where there's no hope and there's really no help. Those covered by shame, those outcasts, those ones that are hopeless, who goes to them? Who, who, who points them to Jesus? Seven abortion mills in Broward County. 34 abortion mills in Dade County. And what's missing is the light because there's plenty of darkness there. Who goes to them? I mean, you and I, we can be like the woman at the well with a new story and a new hope. And she goes and gets other hurting people and shares with them that hope and help. Come and see. Come and see this man. Do you know people like that? I mean, I, I, know, I know people like that. Some of the hurting that, that, are, that are hidden and burdened and weighed down by shame and difficulty. Maybe they did something. Maybe they didn't. Maybe somebody did something to them. But there's this shame and this guilt. They're outcasts because of decisions they've made. Do you know people like that? In a ministry this size, without question, there are people like that in your life. They feel helpless. They feel alone. And maybe that's one of you today. Maybe the season of fasting and the season of prayer has, has revealed something to you, has shown you something, has brought something to the surface that's uncomfortable and ugly. Your story can change. Before lunch today, your story can change. It is a trust. It is, it is a repentance of your sin. It is a recognition of your deep need for Jesus. She's going to the well for water, and Jesus says, oh, you need so much more than water. <laughs> How good is this? He says, I know what you need, and I'm going to give you what you need. And then he shows it to her, and he gives it to her. And she's so elated with this. She's so filled with this. She forgot why she was there. She runs back to the town that rejected her. I mean, this is incredible. Trust in the Savior. Fall upon your knees and trust in him. This is what all of this book is about. All of it. Every page points you to Jesus. Every page shows you the love of God and the hope that's found in what, whom God has sent, his son, the savior of the world. I mean, Love Life helps these moms and dads by sharing with them the gospel, by sharing with them the hope, by sharing with them Christ. And many of them think, Man, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm okay without Jesus. Every, everything's fine. I'm good. Leave me alone. I'm good. I, everything's okay. And they try to change the subject. We tell the mom, Dad, you're not fine. Everything's not good. Look, look, look at what you're doing. Look at where you are. You're looking in the wrong place for hope. You're looking in the wrong place that's going to lead you through choices that are going to cause more damage. This is, this is what we share with them. In essence, we tell them your story can be one of life instead of one of death. We tell the dads out there, men, you can be heroes today, saving the life of a child. We tell the women and, and that are out there, man, you can choose a life today. That can be your story. And that's the good news. This is not the end. There is forgiveness. There is hope. There is help. And his name is Jesus. 
Amen. If we're going to stop and say amen, if we're going to celebrate anything, that's Jesus. Come and see him. Come and hear his voice. Man, I wish God would say something to me. I wish God would speak to me. I wish. Open his book. He's speaking to you. You want to hear his voice audibly? Read it out loud. He's speaking to you. This is his word to you. The good news is the life-changing gospel. The Savior Jesus, his sacrificial death, his heaven-opening resurrection gives you hope now, salvation now, eternal life forever. Man, what more of a beautiful story do you need? And maybe, maybe you have this new story today. Maybe this is your story. You have a new heart in Christ. You, have, you celebrate. You can be like Jesus today by going to the ones in need. You can be like Christ today by loving them in the midst of their chaos, in the midst of their crisis. How many of you can say that someone loved you in the midst of your chaos, in the midst of your crisis? Oh, well, maybe you, know, maybe you don't want to admit it today. Maybe you don't want to say anything today. But you know, and God knows. You're not hiding that from him. She was trying to hide some things from Jesus. That wasn't happening. You matter. And you're loved by God and you're cherished by him. And that's the good news that no matter your condition, no matter your crisis, no matter what's happening in your life and in mine, Jesus is right now in front of you. Right now, ready, able, and willing. He was in front of that woman, ready, able, and willing. This is the God we serve. This is the God you just sung to. This is the God we worship. This is who you fasted next to, for, because of, by, this God. No matter your condition, come talk to your pastors. Go to him. Come and see, for he's with you. Let us pray. Father, we are... Man, Lord, your word is heavy. And it's piercing all at the same time. Father, your truth is, is it digs down deep into our bones. It grips our spirit in ways. And Father, may we see beyond this as just some story that was written. May we see it as a spiritual truth that you are revealing and unveiling to us who you are, your character, your love, your care for us, that you do care. Lord, this is, this is intended to change us. Father, help us be changed by it. You make that change in us. So we come, and whether we come here every Sunday or, or we listen to the message online or we come to the hubs gathering or, or we go to the, the women's conference or we show up at men's night, whatever it is we do, Lord, in those things, may you be so profoundly at work that we look differently to the world. That we love people the way the world doesn't understand. That we, that we do things and talk to people that the world rejects. Help us, Father. And this is why you've put this word here before us today. We don't know who this woman is. And we don't need to know who she is. We just need to know what you did with her and for her and to her. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the discomfort and the beauty of your word. Thank you for the struggle through our prayers. Thank you for the struggle through, through, through recognizing that you're at work. Thank you for making us strong in that struggle.
Thank you for showing us the spiritual truth. That you see us, that you know us, and that you care for us. We love you, Father. We do. And it's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.